Hey, what's going on? This is Jeremy Thone, Marketing Director of 3PL Systems and host of 3PL Live. Excited to share an episode with Andy Paul. He is an author of three books and hosts his own podcast as well. Andy's latest book is called Sell Without Selling Out. It's really interesting because I think we've all been around salespeople that have been characterized as sleazy, self-interested, lazy, etc. He calls these people sellouts and then he has another the opposite of that would be selling in and selling in would basically be having more aligned with your values as a person and really having the buyer's best interest in mind it's a really interesting book and i hope you enjoy this episode with andy paul hey andy thanks for coming on to 3pl live I'm super excited to talk to you about your your new book, Sell Without Selling Out. For other people that are more introverted in sales and other people that might not mm-hmm. identify with your normal, normal sales rep, could you just explain like what your reason for writing the book? Well, the reason for writing the book is my belief that in B2B sales, we're just not getting any better. The data would point us in the direction of thinking that, yeah, you could actually make a case that, that we've become less effective and less productive in B2B sales over the last 20, 30 years than we were before that. I wanted to really understand why, and, and I you know, spent a lifetime sort of studying this. What I lay out in the book is that too many people are still sort of sellers or st- and sales leaders are still sort of enthralled to these, what I consider sort of outdated, obsolete, stereotypical ways of selling, right? The mm-hmm. pushy, persuasive, you know, Self, self-interested, purely self-interested seller that the buyers perceive as sort of lazy and uninterested and kind of sleazy. And it's like, why? Why are we still doing this? I mean, we, we know it doesn't work. I mean, yes, there are exceptions. You do enough of some one thing. You know, yeah, people buy, but they're not enjoying it. As I talk about in the book is in too many cases, customers make the decision to buy from you in spite of you, not because of you. Mm-hmm. And we really need to change that. We need to change that. So buyers are, are buying from us because of us, not despite us. And define these salesy behaviors that people instinctively resist as selling out and draw a picture of what it means to sell another way, which I call selling in, which mm-hmm. are based on getting better at utilizing our innate human strengths in order to connect with buyers, to understand what's most important to them and how we can help them achieve those things that are most important to them. I want to echo too, like I was in sales for a good portion of my career. And I remember actually, I worked for this one SaaS-based text-to-give software. I remember actually going into the sales floor and just being completely terrified because it was like 60 people and it was like that you know, hoorah, bro kind of vibe with like a gong yeah. thing hitting and yeah. just completely intimidating. And I remember actually like not really knowing anything about the product. And then they brought me into like a room with like the VP of sales and like one of the lead account executives to do like a cold call pitch, even though I didn't really have any time to prepare for it. And I think me being like a nervous person, I got introverted and just sort of fell on my words and then just felt like completely deflated just felt like crap really afterwards. And sure. then <laughs> and then I went into like, you know, I would try to go and like write my script down and like go into a room and then just try to do my calls without anyone hearing me and all these sort of things to like avoid put on display by the sales leader to, you know, go out there and make me an example of, Hey, you said this on that last sentence and I'm already like just nervous. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not super normal to go through those things. So it's just interesting that 
that sales leaders think that that's like the right environment to to get the best set of people to connect with other humans. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I mean, the problem is, is it's not, it's not the sales leaders as individuals. Sure. It's just how they've been trained, right? It's how they've been taught to believe that this is how you have to work with people in sales. The fact is we don't train sales leaders to understand how do you improve someone's performance, right? How do you work with someone when there's a science behind this? I mean, in athletics, you know, track and field and lots of sports, my favorite sport, soccer, there are people with you know, intense or academic and experiential background that understand the whole science of performance improvement. Well, you'd think we'd want to train our sales leaders how to do that. Sure. <laughs> but, but we don't. And so what happens is they get into a situation like you described where it's like, well, yeah, let's just sort of try to brute force our way through this problem. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's almost just like they they were taught a certain way and they're the the sales leaders were taught a certain way and that that way never sort of evolved. And it's nice that other people like yourself are seeing that there is this EQ side of things that maybe someone like myself or maybe even some I don't, I'm not maybe other people that have anxiety like myself would find it nice to maybe like leaders, people learn in different ways. So maybe mm -hmm. the next evolution of sales leaders are going to be a little bit, have more EQ with what they're doing and, you know, be able to be like, Hey, maybe this person has anxiety and maybe I could help coach them with their anxiety and how to get around it. And, and I think that the other part of it is that we focus so much on KPIs and other things that it, it makes it hard to, it's just, these interests are not aligned properly. To, not, to, yeah, No, absolutely not. I think this is, this is one of the things I address and topics I address in the book is that as a leader, you're you're more likely to experience success if you focus on helping each of the individuals that work for you become the best version of themselves through coaching, through understanding, understanding the person, what they're trying to achieve in life and what their unique strengths are and how you can help them achieve, excuse me, achieve what's important to them. Yeah, you have much better success at the end of the day than saying, hey, you just haven't hit your numbers. Right, your activity metrics and so on. Nothing wrong with <laughs> you need to have goals. This is a business, we're a goal-driven business, we're a performance-driven business, you know, things that we need to achieve, but there's not just one way to achieve it. The way to achieve it is not to crack the whip harder. Mm. The way to achieve it is to help people understand well what they need to be able to develop, what they need to be able to become in order to achieve goals, and then help them achieve them. And you can't abdicate that responsibility of saying, yeah. We have responsibility as people that are working for me to help them improve and get better. You'd mentioned too about being like salesy. What do you what, what do you mean by? I have an idea in my head what salesy <sighs> means. But what, what what do you? Uh, if we were just to riff on that for a minute, what did you I mean? mean by there's there's so many different examples. I mean, there was somebody I posted about this. I'd seen it. Somebody commented on one of my LinkedIn posts this week, and he said, "Yeah, I'm avoiding salespeople like the plague." And he said, "For this reason, it's like." Yeah, they're doing a preparation for their calls with me. They need listed the sort of seven things that were just stereotypical, no call preparation, overly familiar with me. Um, oh gosh, I'm sort of forgetting in the moment what some of the others were, but sure. but there are things that we all sort of experience. I mean, for me, one story that I, I've told <laughs> that I thought was sort of a standout story that I thought would only occur once and actually just happened again this week is, is yeah, I've got my own podcast. I've, I've been at it for seven years, pretty good size audience. We've done 1,039 episodes. <laughs> I get this message from somebody this week. Hey, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? <laughs> it seems a little lazy because like you could get a little bit more information, right? Well, but this is this is salesy behavior, right? Yeah. You're selling out. It's it's like you're on LinkedIn. You sent me this message on LinkedIn. Look at my profile. Take 
10 seconds to look at my profile and you would see that, oh, wow, actually he does have a podcast. I mean, if, when you get to that point where we can't be bothered to take you know, the, the smallest of steps. And so when you take act, actions like that, when you are salesy, you're creating a perception in the mind of the buyer, potential buyer, that is never going to change. You know, that, that person come back to me again later? No, right? It's just not going to be happening because I already know what they're about. They're purely transactional. And that's not what your buyers need. That's a very interesting point, purely transactional, because I feel like if if they're part of the problem is, is that they have these KPIs that are set by businesses. So they, they need to hit a certain amount of activity fast, or at least like in some sort of streamlined way, I assume. So like maybe like researching, maybe their company doesn't allow researching or they haven't given well, them. Some a don't. <laughs> they say yeah. they do. They say they do, but some don't. And yeah, I mean, the first person that reached out to me and asked me <laughs> and suggested I start a podcast, which was like, I don't know, a little over a year ago, I responded to. And I said, hey, come on, you're on LinkedIn. <laughs> One of my, my profile banner is about my podcast. It was at that time. It's about my book today. But up until recently, it was about my podcast. Again, 10 seconds. I said, so why did you spend 10 seconds? And he said, literally, I don't have time to do that. Jeez. I mean, that's what's, it's, it's come down to so transactional and dirty for lack of better words. <laughs> hmm. Well, yeah. If you treat the buyers this way, I mean, this is the buyers are going to be have, what we're doing is providing buyers a strong incentive to learn how to go through their buying process without talking to salespeople. So, I mean, there's research out that says, yeah, this is the trend that buyers don't want to talk to salespeople. Quite frankly, buyers never want to talk to salespeople. It's been true for millennia at this point. Mm-hmm. It's not a new phenomenon. They do have time to talk to sellers who can help them achieve and complete their job, which is to be able to quickly gather and make sense of the information they need to make an informed decision with the least investment of their time and attention. That's what, that's what buyers are trying to achieve. Very simple. Help me with this. If you can help me with this, then I have time for you. If you can't help me with this, then I don't have time for you. So do you think that a lot of, I mean, do, it seems like the, the, some people believe in like researching before you reach out to like make a cold call. And then other people don't really believe in it. Like the, I guess the people that reached out to you about the podcast, what is your thoughts on like, is there like an optimal amount of time or just like a couple minutes or what is your thoughts on like uh, research before cold calling say? I mean, I do it, but I'm, yeah, in my business, I'm not doing a hundred, hundred cold emails <laughs> a day, but it raises issues whether you really need to do a hundred cold emails a day, right? Sure. Whether we've set the system up in such a way that we think the, there's these requirements that it's always about more and more and more as opposed to doing better first, and then let's learn how to do more. Sure. And it seems to be part of the equation that, that people miss is, is, yeah, what is the way that we, how could we communicate with people? Let's say in cold outreach, where we get a, a better response or results in more of the outcomes we want, whether it's a meeting of, you know, initial conversation or a demo or whatever we're selling. Instead, we sort of default to more. The way the buyers experience that is generally is not very good. Right. And we have to be mindful of what how the buyers experience us as sellers because some research has shown that that's actually sort of the decisive factor in the minds of the buyer when they make the purchase decision is how they experienced the sales interaction, right? The interaction with the sellers. And it makes total sense because, yeah, if you're selling a SaaS product in many SaaS categories, <laughs> if there were 10 competitors two years ago, there's 30 today, right? Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then the both the actual differences and the perceived differences on the part of the buyer, the products, just not there, right? In the mind's eye of the buyer, they're all alike. So what's the differentiating point on which the buyer makes their decision? Oftentimes, a large contributor to that is, well, 
what was their experience like of the of working with the sellers during their buying journey? Mm-hmm. So true. And it, it's, it's interesting too, because my mom is like the queen of this. Like if you go, if she's going to buy something, she already knows what she wants. But if, if there's a seller that approaches her, let's just say it's a car and the seller, sure. the seller approaches her and doesn't give her the information that she asked for and tries to sell her on all these features and benefits and, and whatnot, she's automatically going to be turned off. But if, if the seller uh, gives her just whatever information that she needs and she's able to sort of make the decision based upon all the facts that was given by her, the seller, then at that point, she's like, okay, like I'm ready to buy. Like she doesn't put any, any walls up. The only walls that ever come up is when, when people are trying to steer you in a certain direction or not give you information that you need do th- or like not give you the price or whatever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're trying to, they're trying to, yeah, it's a persuasion-driven approach to sales, right? Mm-hmm. And as humans, we all resist being persuaded, right? When we're being sold to, we put the defenses up, like much like you talk like your mom. Yeah, I look back on what have been my best buying experiences, both as a business owner and as a, a consumer. And I'll tell you, the two best were buying a car from someone, far outstripped almost any experience I've had with with. Um, B2B salespeople. And the second was back back in the day, which I haven't done this for a while, but you guys hugely memorable is when I was in the business of buying suits more frequently. Uh, a guy that sold me suits at Nordstrom's. Guy was fantastic. I mean, a conversational, what do you want? Really wanted to understand how I was going to be using the suits. I travel a lot. Was it for social, for business? And you know, we'd have this five, 10 minute conversation. And then he said, well, you know, suggest something here and then go back through more questioning after we did that. Hugely professional, followed up with me for years. And I went back to him several times, but again, I haven't bought a new suit for, for quite a long time because uh, I don't use them in business as much anymore. But and yeah, it's just indelibly burned my mind is this guy was the pro's pro and he could have succeeded in selling any product basically, I think. And yeah, car experience, same way. Somebody very professional, went in, we hadn't made an appointment, but my wife and I started wandering onto the show and we sort of knew what we wanted to buy. And yeah, just made it so simple and so easy. Interesting. What what about the suit salesman? Did you like, it sounded like it just because he took the time to understand what the suits were going to be used for. And then he also seemed like it wasn't transactional, like he was building like a relationship. Is that was kind a relationship. Of- yeah. I mean, he, he obviously knew that, yeah, a guy like me in business and I was you know, buying a really nice suit that, hey, if he's going to buy one of these nice suits, might buy two or three. Sure. It was all about my needs, what I was trying to accomplish, not about pushing me in one direction or another. It wasn't, you know, an extended interaction. I actually think that as a result of that, I probably spent less time in the process of buying a suit, which for me was great because, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> go in and spend a ton of time doing it. Sure. More of a a buyer than a shopper. Sure. And so having somebody that could really help me like that was invaluable. And I think buyers are the same way. You know, they're not, they're not shoppers. They're, they're buyers. They've got a, a, ta- a to-do, to-do item on their task list, right? You and five other people are part of this buying committee make a decision. It's not their job, right? That's, they've got real jobs to do. So they're trying to, as I said before, they're trying to quickly gather the information they need to make a, a good decision with the least investment of their time and attention. So how can a seller help you do that? If you can do that, you're going to win a lot. It is interesting too, because I saw a guy actually like on LinkedIn posted a picture of his daughter buying a, a Jeep Rubicon and she didn't look like your typical buyer of a Jeep Rubicon. She just looked like a younger gal and you you know, you can't judge a book by its cover always, right. but she actually had the cash and she was ready to buy it. And the, 
dad had posted something on LinkedIn saying, Hey, like, don't judge a book. It's cover, like pay attention to like my daughter next time that she goes to your dealership. Cause it sounded like she went to one and someone ignored her because it, she didn't fit. Oh like, yeah. The, <laughs> which is interesting. I mean, that happens a lot. I mean, I have a similar story of one to buy a bicycle market for a road bike. And I was uh, in Manhattan and wasn't too far from my house and loved this bike that was in the window. And I'd read good things about it, but I'd never really seen it in person. And so I walk into this bike store and I'm in there not for about five minutes and no one says a word to me. Jeez. And so I leave. Sure. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, obviously was looking at the bike in the window. <laughs> at least making you feel welcomed, you know, like not like yeah. you're like inner, inner. Sometimes it happens. You go into a place and it feels like you're interrupting their conversation almost. Oh, this, that was definitely <laughs> the case. And then, you know, two people standing behind the cash register. Okay. You know, this is a kind of expensive road bike that I was in the market for a really nice one. And sure. Yeah. Just couldn't be bothered. And it's like, okay, see ya. No, that store has been put out of business. <laughs> not yeah, surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not too long thereafter, actually. A couple of years later, I walked by the same block and it's like, nope, they're gone. Do you live in Manhattan? Is that where you're at? I live part-time in Manhattan and part-time in San Diego. Oh, that's fantastic. That's like the best of both worlds. <laughs> it is like the best of both worlds. Yes. Yeah. It's it's fantastic. My wife's work is in New York um, and I I can work from anywhere. So yeah, we go back and forth. That's amazing. I love the city. I was actually just there maybe a few months ago. I brought Dolomite, my my dog with me because he's small enough to travel. Mm -hmm. But I, I always love going to New York just to get, I don't know. I feel like there's a sense of energy there that you pick up from walking around the streets. It just sort of it's energizes me. It's coming back. The energy is coming back for sure. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah. I mean, every time I'm there, which is monthly is... Yeah, especially over the last year, you could just see more and more activity return to the city and compared to the beginning of the pandemic when the streets were empty, which was quite eerie. Yeah, it's not quite back to normal, but it's it's getting, getting there. Getting there. It's getting there. So yeah, yeah, it feels yeah. like New York again. I wanted to ask you too, like your creative process. You, you have a podcast. You've written a couple books. So how do Three you? Books, yeah. So how do you um like like your book for example, your your recent book? How do you go about structuring? A book like that and you have like a very like you have your own style i've noticed with like i i was listening to the audible version of it and the way mm -hmm. you narrate has like your own voice and your own style which i think is very unique to you so i'm just wondering there's a couple questions there like sure. one how did how did you develop that style and then two when you're going about like writing something as complicated as that book how do you go about doing that it seems like it'd be very overwhelming <laughs> Uh, well, times it's, it can feel like that. Yeah. You know, from a stylistic standpoint, it's, it's practice, right? It's just, yeah, from writing other books, from writing a lot of blog posts over the years to now increasingly writing a lot on LinkedIn is finding, yeah, you find your voice through practice and how people engage with your content. And you're trying to find a voice that's authentic to who you are and mm -hmm. what you care about. So for me, I've always try to be more conversational in the way I write. And yeah, my wife is good at pointing out when I try to use too big of words, um, <laughs> which I like to slip in occasionally. <laughs> sure. It's just practice. Yeah, if you have a point of view, which I do, and those evolve, but I mean, if, if you're just practicing, sort of trying to explain to other people what, about things that you think are important, that they should know and share information, yeah, you'll develop a voice. It doesn't mean it's one, one way or the other. I mean, I think some people's sort of voices evolve. I'm sure mine has over time as I've maybe become more proficient at certain forms of writing. I sort of have in my mind's eye the response I want from people. 
and try to, and what the voice I think is most effective at, at eliciting that. that before, so, before you found that voice, did it take somewhat of courage to figure out like whether or not what you were thinking and what you're writing was before you get that, uh, feedback, it's sort of hard to know whether or not it's being received oh, yeah. the way you think it is. That never really goes away. I mean, that's, you know, with every new book, with, with uh, <laughs> almost every, every post on LinkedIn, it's like for a second there, you always, I think almost everybody always thinks, okay, well, what are people going to think about this? I mean, when I first started speaking in public uh, a while back is, <laughs> or paid speaking is my wife would say, well, I'd come back from a speaking engagement and she'd go, so how'd it go? I said, well, you know, no one stood up and called me an idiot. So I think it was okay. <laughs> and that was, you know, you always sort of that fear, right? That people are-, are Especially to, to be paid and to, to go to a thing. I mean, it's ter- yeah. terrifying without getting paid. So it seems, <laughs> yeah. like a, it seems like even more dialed up pressure. It can be, but it's, people are there to learn. They're not there necessarily to judge. I mean, nobody's going to like everything you say. And that's fine. That's part of accepting, sort of putting yourself out there is- you have to just accept that, hey, some people aren't going to agree with everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I posted something yesterday on LinkedIn and yeah, some guy said, yeah, nah, completely untrue. Well, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's everybody true. has their opinion. What we want, yeah, part we want is we want discussions. Sure. And we want to exchange of ideas. I do at least. And so, yeah, I welcome that. But yeah, it's, you have to develop a little bit of a thick skin. If you're going to do it regularly and if you're going to publish books, for instance, and because then, yeah, you're really sort of exposing yourself. Sure. But it's, it's, um, I don't know if you feel a desire to, and really a need to say, yeah, here's a message I think is important for people to, to know and to understand. And, and here's a way that I can give back and help the sales community of which I've been a part for a really, really long time. Yeah. It sort of mitigates some of that concern. I think that part of it is really cool because there's only been a couple sales folks that I've seen. I would say that maybe the top three that I can think of, like you, a guy named Bilal that has a thing called Death to Fluff, and then yeah. Scott Lease, I would say. Mm-hmm. I'd say like you three are kind of like anti-corporate salesmen. Like you guys kind of have like this, this like soul, like soulful sales in some sort of sense where it's just, sure. you know, a, a more holistic approach to it. And I, I could, I think that we need well, more of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the key messages in the book is that absent somebody giving you permission to, to sell that way, because a lot of I think as we talked about really right at the beginning, it's I think most people are sort of like this, but they feel sort of compelled by the situation they're in or the person they work for, or the training they received, the sort of assumed this act, mm-hmm. uh, this persona of sort of the, you talk about the bro-ish uh, sellers or the pushy persuasive sellers, and they're not really that way. This is, this is, this is nothing new. This is, I said, as long as there's been modern sales for the last 140 years, this is, I'm sure has been a, a part of it, but it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I said, buyers don't like it. And it's, there's this fiction that we talked about before that somehow you have to act this way in order to get your buyer to take action, which mm-hmm. is just 180 degrees from the truth. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to, to think about it all, but even giving, it's like you mentioned, like giving permission for, I think that there's a, probably a lot of people out there that work for companies, maybe it's Google or whatever software company, and they, they might have something that they want to talk about, but they're might be nervous to post it on LinkedIn because they're worried about it at representing oh, yeah. the company. Cause actually I talked to this gal the other day and, and she had mentioned, Hey, just make sure that at the end of this, say, it's not, this is the opinion of myself and not of, of this company that she worked for. Right. And I looked at that and I, I I actually felt that a long time ago as well, where I was just like, I never really wanted to completely put myself out there because I felt like it might damage my relationship with the company. And I feel like people have that, 
that a little bit of that line there as well. Would you? I've had people DM me on LinkedIn and say, I really wanted to like and comment on your post today, but I know my boss follows you. And so I can't. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really telling. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, yeah. it, it's funny. It's sort of, there's sort of a crescendo of that during the pandemic. Uh, it's maybe tapered off a little bit now, but this I think is, is again, one of the essential messages of what I was writing about in the book is that you as an individual seller, if you're feeling like you're being asked to do things, take actions that don't align with you, who you are, your values, your character, what you think your unique strengths are, then you owe it to yourself to say no and say, hey, I think there's a better way to do this. I think I can be more effective doing it slightly differently. I'll stay within you know, the confines of the framework, so how we need to operate. But I think I'd be better off if I could experiment a little bit and come up with a better way to do it hold me accountable for, for hitting my goal? Absolutely. I think there's a better way for me. And you'll be better off for it. Maybe not in the short run, depending on who your boss is, but in the long run, you will, because you, what you'll do in your career is you'll look for those situations where you can bring your strengths to bear and you can be yourself in selling and you'll be better off for it. And the, <laughs> the company you work for will be better off for it and your buyers will be better off for it. I, I do like that, what you're saying. How do you, how do you align, I guess, some of your, I know that when my values have been violated, for instance, in the past, like there, there's one time without giving the name of the company, there was one time where we had basically software that split off and someone stole our software and they opened another company mm -hmm. with the same software. And then there was a lawsuit going on and we basically said, Hey, you're using our software. <laughs> you have to come back to us, but we're going to also charge you $5,000 to come back to us. And we're going to sue you basically if this doesn't happen. So that happened, unfortunately, at a company that I worked for. And I was the sales rep at that company. And I had to approach the person that left and, you know, the, in their eyes, they just left because someone said that, that they had the software. They said that they owned mm. it from their eyes. It's completely like, I get it. I get where you're coming from as a customer. And then we're saying, Hey, we're going to sue you unless you, uh, unless you come back to us. And I want you, Jeremy, to go over there and get $5,000 from these people and just try to make it. I just felt it felt dirty and it felt gross. Yeah. And I didn't, I just felt like this is not, there's no way to make this a win-win situation for me. So I, I, I mean, I did it at the time, but it, I just, what I did is I empathized with the people and I was like, I understand what you're saying. I don't agree mm -hmm. with this myself. I'm just the messenger because I didn't really know what else to do in well. that. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation. We've, we've all, at some point in our career, if we've been in sales, right, been <laughs> forced to do things we definitely thought were the wrong things to do. Yeah, I referred to one of those in the book where you had to call a customer at home on Christmas Eve. Christmas, oh, yeah, where they're opening presents, basically. To, to get an invoice uh, or something? Yeah, to get a, yeah, to get an order. So the nature of the relationship with the buyer substantially when you have to do that. And I just said, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. So no. Really quick though. Like, what is that feeling that you, I, I, I get that feeling too. Like, cause I feel like it's not, I don't want to interrupt their family time, but that would be the reason. Cause I, I feel like it would be as a human, like that just doesn't seem right. Like it's family over well, business. It maybe or... extreme, extreme case, right? It's Christmas yeah. Eve. He was celebrating with his family is, yeah. I mean, in general, you know, doing cold outreach to someone is, yeah, you do that. Cause that's sort of part of our job. Sure. That to me is a little different. That doesn't fall into the same category of uh, sort of slimy behavior. But if, but in general, I mean, it could be even be, yeah. You know, hey, how you have to do your cold outreach? There are lots of ways of, of doing it. 
you know, in my first job I had out of school, there was real expectations. You know, we go out and make a ton of cold calls. And I did that for a long time, you know, physically in the field. And I thought, well, God, there's got to be a, a better way, right? Hey, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really like it. Yeah, you know, I was having some success with it and was on track to do President's Club and so on. But it's just like, yeah, this, I don't know, this just doesn't, this isn't who I am. Sure. Yeah, I changed. I'd create my own system for for lead gen that instead of going out and making cold calls and knocking on doors is I would, this was a long time ago, but it's prior to email, but I would send postcards to, yeah, I'd get 20 names. I have a business director every week, 20 names, invite them to a seminar in my branch office where I do a demonstration. So we'd say we're having a seminar about accounting for construction companies because I was selling to construction companies. And then I'd make calls during the week to follow up rigorously with all 20. I usually yield three to four people out of the 20 that I sent out. And I always got at least one qualified opportunity out of the, the people that came. That was just my way of doing it. It worked for me. Right. Other people, hey, maybe something else would work. But that's the whole point is talk about the book is you have to experiment as a seller. You have to experiment, find out what works best for you. And then you have to insist that, hey, you'll deliver. You just need to be given the autonomy to go out and execute the way that you think will work best for you. I agree with you completely. I think that we get caught up in not wanting to experiment because we want like directions from the lead person. And you talk about that in the book and just like you doing what your boss says and you were kind of you know, if some if the boss gave you some sort of thing, uh, directive, you'd be like, okay, maybe I'll think about it. And it would piss them off. You were mentioning in the book, yeah, which I yeah. thought was, which I thought was hilarious. I might've been like, yeah, cool. I'll try it. But I think in the past with me, like, I, I don't, I think it took me a while to like really want to experiment and try like different things to like figure out like the best way to do like a sales process. I, maybe it's when you're more green, like you, you want structure, but I think that when you get more more into it, you start wanting to try like different things, like sending postcards. I think that the last gig that I had, I was, I was mailing like mollusk or the, those like nice notebooks. And yeah, I only, yeah. I only, I didn't buy a lot of them. I only bought maybe like 20 of them. And I, I sent them to like Spotify and like big accounts that I thought like would, would have been a good fit for that company. So I, I think that it's, it's interesting. It, it makes sense sometimes to think a little bit differently, try different things because you don't know Absolutely. what's good. And it's especially like post now. I mean, like the, the mail is almost retro probably now. now that- <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm, you know, there's a reason you still get junk mail because people open it. Lots of people I know that are utilizing mail, right? Regular mail to send, send things and having good open rates and good success with it. It's working for them with what they're doing. And this is the whole point is that is there's a trend that's not a new trend, but it seems to have been accentuated in the last, let's say, decade is to... You know, approach this, uh, adopt this cookie cutter approach to selling, right? That we've got one way of selling. This is how we do it. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. But yeah, you know, if there's 5 million salespeople in the world, there's 5 million unique sales processes. Mm-hmm. And your job as a leader is not to try to turn, you know, me into somebody else or you into somebody else. It's to turn you, help you become the best version of you. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a message I think that's lost on a lot of sales leaders, but it's one that's really important because this is how we get the best out of people. This is how we get people who are more productive. We know, I mean, this has been researched in multiple different venues, is that when you give people agency over the choices they make, and we'll say in this case, over choices they make about how to sell, they'll be more creative, they'll be more productive, they'll be more fulfilled, if they're more fulfilled, they're more likely to stay around, right? Instead of having the SaaS world where, you know, AEs, account executives are churning 
the latest report I saw was like every year or maybe slightly under a year, which has you know huge cost implications and are hugely disruptive, is you get people to stay. It costs you very little as a leader. It's really the issue with leaders is they have to show a little courage themselves to say, yeah, the safe path is to just execute the playbook we've been executing for years. But the fact is for most people, those, those playbooks are kind of broken. Your best path to success, I said, it's not to make everybody a clone of somebody else, but to help them become the best version of themselves. And we have this great technology, all these great technologies to, to help people do that. It's just the leaders have to use it to develop the individual, not to develop, I said, replicas of one individual. A hundred percent. Everything that you're saying is spot on. Cause I feel like leaders, they break you. I mean, I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but it seems like they, they want to break you down into like a certain stereotype. And then mm -hmm. they want to manufacture you into this person instead of taking your unique set of skills and personality and accentuating that to make you successful in your own terms. Because well, it's harder, harder for them. If they, if they do that, as opposed to, it's easier to say, yeah, I want everybody to be just like Jerome, right? It's sure. like, yeah, no. Well, I want to also ask you about your, um, your podcast. So you'd mentioned you'd been doing it for seven years. So how, how, how did that journey start? And like, how did you end up starting it? And what high level, like, how has the experience and journey been? Oh, it's been fascinating. I mean, I, I think as I'm on record saying this, you know, podcasting is one of the most selfish things you can do because in my case, as an interview-based show, much like yours, as I've spoken now with, we had some repeat guests, so let's just say close to 900 different people, smart people that I've learned a ton from. So for me, it's it's been hugely enriching and I think it's been valuable for the people that, that listen to it as well. So yeah, I, I, I thought it'd be a great way to create content. That's why I started it, not really knowing anything about it at all. And I'd gone to a conference and seen a podcaster speak of, at the time, big podcaster. And I thought, well, that sounds like that'd be fun. <laughs> so yeah, started it in the fall of 2015. And yeah, it's you know 2020, my podcast was acquired, which was a very unexpected development. Yeah. How did that and, happen? Walk me through that. That sounds crazy in an interesting way. Well, it's just a company that was really aligned with the, the thought leadership that that was coming from the podcast and my point of view and what I believe in. And they thought aligned well with their messaging. So there was, you know, it's, it's multiple parts to a sort of a, on their part, sort of a thought leadership play, sort of an influencer marketing play, as well as, you know, the archive of my episodes are, you know, if you transcribe them and <laughs> make them available to be crawled, they're a huge um, SEO. Sure source, right? So keyword source. So drives a lot of traffic to, to website. So there's multiple reasons for it. And uh, yeah, we're just sort of starting our third year of that partnership. That's super cool. That's amazing. That, yeah, that... <laughs> very unexpected. So yeah, very unexpected. Um, but yeah, it's been, so it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, it's opened up um, sort of a lot of opportunities that we hadn't anticipated getting into it. It's interesting too, because I, I do feel like um, there's a different opportunities that have came up as a result of podcasting. But for people like uh, my dad's generation, they have a hard time saying like, well, where does like the ROI come from? But sometimes it's a little <laughs> bit hard to describe the ROI because there's there's different relationships that happen and strategies and you become smarter. And I think you add a lot of value to the market. So yeah. to me, I see I see the value, but I don't really understand how to describe it back to that, that group of uh, individuals, if you will. Yeah. So value <laughs> comes from 
sponsorships for one, if you want to monetize it, which we did pretty much from the beginning is monetize it, sold sponsorships. Actually, we sort of went through waves where we sold more intently focused on sponsorships than others, but we were able to sell that because we were speaking to a specific audience that people wanted to, wanted to address. And then, um, yeah, as you said, you create opportunities. Certainly opportunities came in terms of paid speaking opportunities, consulting agreements, uh, coaching that I do emanated from people that, that hear me on the podcast. And yeah, then yes, caught the, caught the eye of a company that really wanted to you know, be engaged at a deeper level and acquired us. That's super cool. Yeah, you've done some really interesting stuff, like with the books, the podcast, and you got your own style. I'm definitely well, it's been an interesting <laughs> career. I mean, I've I um, I've done yeah. It's nice thing about being in sales is I just you know think of things that that have sort of come my way as a result of being in sales and being open to new things and experimenting and pushing myself uh, to take some risks that a number of sort of firsts in my career and and um, traveled the world, which was I would not normally have done otherwise. You know, sold on every continent but Antarctica. Oh wow. And, <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's it's just yeah incredibly grateful and, and fortunate that you know I've had these opportunities. And as I stress more and more, it's so much of of being fulfilled in your career and finding the right opportunities and being able to earn some money and so on. It's about finding the right fit. You know, finding the right boss to work for, finding the right product that sort of excites you and, and perhaps challenges you to learn something new that you didn't know before to yeah take on different types of, of selling. Yeah, I was a little bit, no, I've been in sales about you know, almost 10 years before I got involved in selling to enterprise. And then, yeah, started selling to really big enterprises and, and started selling really, really big deals. And one thing just sort of led to another. But it's, it's, you know, sort of putting yourself out there, I think is really important. And as a, having an open mind, being curious, willing to challenge yourself. And yeah, it's been, it's been a great ride. I got one last question for you. Sure. Um, Cause, uh, and, but I, I really appreciate the time. And I know you probably have a lot on your plate with the, the new book. And I, I'm very grateful for your time and for you coming on and having this conversation. Cause it's fascinating for me personally. And I think a lot of people enjoy it. But my last question for you is sure. um, about, I guess, risk, there's all sorts of opportunities that happen to us on a daily basis, or, mm-hmm. you know, it might be like a job, it might be like a relationship, it might be anything. And, and I could see from your career that you've taken a lot of big risk, like the book, you know, a couple books, podcasts, uh, sold to other companies. So I think that you, at this point, you've sort of probably came up with some sort of framework for risk. So like, how do you how do you view risk? And like, do you have any tips for people with anxiety and that panic a lot to, to get over their fears? <laughs> ah, great question. I think with, with anything as, and this is not, yeah, not a, a cure for anxiety at all, but you, know, when you're, when you're, you have to make sure you put yourself in a situation where, you know, there is some risk, you know, you get the experience of succeeding, meaning that, that you're going to get the opportunity to experience some success and build some confidence. And I think this is this is this is a hard thing these days because you know there's a lot of markets that you know sellers can sort of do well relative to their quota, but maybe they only win one of every four deals that they they work on, right? And I, I'm concerned about those people because this if you're hitting your quota but you're only winning one of every four of your most qualified opportunities, you're still fundamentally losing more than you win, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I think it's really important to put yourself in a situation where that's that's not the case where you're you're getting the experience of winning a majority of the qualified opportunities that you have mm-hmm. there's an environment where either through the product or through the 
the support you get from you know your manager uh yeah it could be the person you work for but where you're in that environment where you're gonna be given that real opportunity to to succeed and build on your success because that's it's that confidence that's that's oftentimes missing for people and certainly in sales it's anxiety provoking that at one level is like yeah how am i gonna hit my number this year right how am i gonna hit my number and if you haven't had the opportunity to work for someone who's who not necessarily will show you how to do that, but will support you, right? Mm -hmm. We'll give you the, the framework you need to understand about, okay, well, how do I plan for success, right? How do I, just to start that, right? How do I plan and put together a plan that will increase the probabilities of me succeeding this year? Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's part of the fit, right? Or you find that person that you work with, work for that could help you do that. Yeah, are you in a, a team environment where, Everybody's very supportive of each other, where the, the sellers don't feel like they're out on an island by themselves, <laughs> away from engineering and everybody else, but they're, they're all part of a team. Mm -hmm. Everybody's working together collectively for a goal. It's not true in every company, but if those things you know, are reassuring to you, then yeah, finding the right fit really is everything. And even people who are extremely confident that they you know, earn you know, high six figures or seven figures in sales, yeah, they've got some of the same same issues, but what they focus on is finding the right fit, mm. right? This is a place where I can achieve the goals I want based on these combinations of factors. And so I think too often sellers sort of get seduced by this idea of this is the hot new product or, mm -hmm. and this is the hot new product and, you know, they're dangling, you know, a bunch of stock options in front of me, or it's like, sure. I mean, it's hard to turn some of that stuff down, but think about, be more strategic in how you plan your career. You know, if you're, looking at your resume and think, well, gosh, I've sort of jumped from job to job, like every year, every 18 months, think about the next time staying longer, mm -hmm. right? Is, is you'll build more confidence. You're not going to be putting yourself in that new situation every year. And chances are, if you're changing jobs that quickly, you're not experiencing the level of success that you really want at each of those steps. Challenge yourself to stay a little bit longer. You may find you develop that sense of confidence that alleviates some of that performance-based anxiety, and then you feel more comfortable going to the next role. Because there are various points for me in my career where staying made all the difference. Oh, or interesting. To leave, but staying just helped me get to that next level and that I couldn't have done had I left. Yeah. And we all have this anxiety at some level or another in sales about, are we going to be able to hit our numbers? Uh, where's the next job going to be if I don't <laughs> do well on this one and so on? But once you've experienced and put yourself in a position where you've you've said, okay, yeah, I know how to do this at a certain level, you start to have that confidence so you can do it elsewhere. Andy, I really appreciate the time. And if people want to buy Thanks, the book, uh, Sell Without Selling Out, buy it on, on Amazon. And is there anywhere else you'd like to send people, your website or? Yeah, well, follow me on LinkedIn. Andy Paul, follow my podcast, uh, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. And yeah, come to andypaul.com. And if you go there, we have a free chapter of my book you can download. And we also have a little a fun quiz you can take to sort of assess um, just how salesy you are. Very cool. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Andy. I certainly enjoyed speaking with him. I could have talked to him for hours about selling because there's a lot of things that I struggled with in my sales career that I wish I would have had leaders like Andy teach me when I was uh, learning how to sell. I think a lot of the times there's this herd mentality where you end up wanting to just please your boss or do whatever the rest of the people in the company are doing. And in my experience, it's best to experiment as much as possible and to be as different as possible from everyone that is around you and make your own path. Thank thanks for uh, listening.